Recovery Elevator, episode 211. I never really felt like I belonged in this world. I mean, it kind of sounds dark and, and deep, but I never really felt like I, I belonged in this world. And I, I never really felt like I belonged in, in, in my family. And Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Steven. He's 30 years old. He's from Bakersfield, California, and he's been sober since August 7th, 2016. In his interview, he talks about how he has a healthy fear with alcohol. And after the interview, I'm going to talk about a guy named Donald Trump. So stick around. Guys, registration for the Bozeman Retreat will go live Friday, March 8th, around 1 p.m. Eastern. This retreat takes place August 14th to the 18th. Signing up early is going to add some major recovery fuel to your journey. Guys, this event is going to be special. It's going to be fun, and I hope to see you there. And before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years, and it didn't work. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group which is capped at 300 members to ensure intimacy. Then you get access to the Cafe RE forum outside of Facebook, which means you don't need a Facebook account to be part of Cafe RE. Both are private and only members can see who is in the groups and what is said. In the forum and Facebook group, you get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For just $19 a month, you too can join the conversation. You can be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups and retreats, participate in book club, movie club, and more. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive this setup fee. I hope to see you there. Internet memes. A picture coupled with just a few short words can spread a powerful message. I saw one the other day that had an old school telephone, and with it were the words, when the phone was attached with a wire, humans were free. One of the best parts of the recovery elevator trip we did to Peru this last October was we were off the grid for three days. In fact, I make it a point each year to do four or five days off the grid without my phone each year. And I've done my best each morning of work to put my phone outside of my office for two hours, three hours, sometimes even till lunch. I encourage you guys to do the same. It's important to let this extremely powerful computing device called smartphones work for us, and we do not want to be enslaved to it. I know there were times in the past with my cell phone usage, I would unconsciously grab for it without even knowing it. I'd say, oh, I need to Google this. I need to research this. I need to text this person. And that would be soothing my internal state with an external device called a cell phone. Do this 10, 20, 40, 50 times a day and this is something we need to be careful of. Anyways, just wanted to share this meme with you. Okay, let's get started. I want to talk to you guys about courage for a moment. For most people, when we hear courage, we think slaying dragons or refusing to sit in the back of the bus. But for many of us, courage is simply being okay with uncertainty, especially with the journey into sobriety. It's being okay with not knowing what is going to happen next. We were much better at this at an earlier time in life simply due to practice. Remember at the end of each grade, right when it felt like we were getting into the swing of things? Come fall each year, we had to go to a new grade 
We had new friends. Who the hell were we going to sit next to? Sometimes there were big jumps, like after elementary school to middle school. From middle school to high school, do you remember that jump? How scary that was? A locker partner? Shit, I got gym class next year? Fudge. I hear Miss Jameson. Actually, that's a terrible name for this podcast. Let's go with, yeah, I hear Miss Linfield doesn't grant hall passes. Many of us don't get the option of sitting these transitions out. We need the courage, and we have the courage to face these life transitions. We can't eloquently say, hey, mom, hey, dad, fourth grade was cool, but I've had enough of this uncertainty. I don't think I can be courageous anymore. My comfort zone limit has been breached, mom and dad. No, these conversations rarely go the way we want them to. This uncertainty is applied with sobriety. We don't know what's going to happen when we quit drinking. We think we know. We know what we want to have happen, but there's no way to tell for sure what is going to happen. We don't know what emotions will present themselves in sobriety, nor if we will have the strength to face them without alcohol. Will we have the courage not to run away? We don't know what will happen at day 7, day 14, day 30, year 1, or even year 10 of sobriety. Will we crash and burn at some point during this endeavor? Will we look silly for trying? Perhaps we feel this way because we've tried so many times before. What are we trying to prove anyways? For everybody who embarks into this journey called sobriety, you don't know what you don't know. And for many of us, this is frightening. But here's the good news. In recovery, we don't need to be at level 10 courageousness at all times or piercing through the veneer of our comfort zone at every moment. My advice is listen to the body. It will tell you when it's time to be courageous, and it will tell you when it's time to go a little slower. You might be saying, hey, Paul, Simba and the Lion King, now that's a courageous cat. I'm not. And that's okay, because guys, courage is not a gene or an inherited skill set. Courage is a practice we build upon. And like I just mentioned, as we went from grade to grade, school to school, perhaps we moved in childhood, we had to call upon this courage. And guys, there was a time in my sobriety journey where courage for me looked like simply putting two feet on the ground and getting out of bed. It took a lot of courage for me to start recovery other. Yes, that took courage. But the podcast launched in 2015. I started building my courage in regards to sobriety years before the first podcast ever launched. This is a practice. And if you're not practicing courage, then you're conforming. And you might be saying to yourself, I don't want to conform. And that's okay, because once this process has started, and I know it already has with you, since it takes courage to simply listen to a recovery podcast, it's irreversible. And deep down, you already have the courage needed to do this. Okay, and now let's hear from Stephen. Stephen, how are you? I'm doing very well, Paul. How are you doing today? Yeah, Stephen, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Uh, Today marks 900 days. Um, I've been sober almost two and a half years. My sobriety date is August 7th, 2016. Wow. Nice job, Stephen. How's it feel? It feels pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. I love it. Yeah, good job. And and give listeners a little background about yourself. I mean, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? All right, cool, man. I'm from Bakersfield, California. I was born and raised here. I work for a uh, utility company here locally, Pacific Gas and Electric. I work on uh, natural gas pipeline systems with uh, instrumentation, uh, flow gas regulation, all that cool stuff. I've been employed with them for this is my sixth year. I'm 30 years old. 
I am currently not married yet, but I do have a beautiful girlfriend who I absolutely adore. So hopefully, uh, um, that'll, that'll, uh, unfold into something, something more, you know, pretty there soon. You so, go. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you like to do for fun? I grew up, uh, doing a lot of outdoor stuff, uh, hunting and fishing, shooting guns, camping, hiking, just anything outdoors for the most part. After I got sober, I started getting into different things and, and having interest towards, towards other things. Like, uh, I got into reading, um, more. I really enjoy, really enjoy reading, especially like recovery stuff, uh, different things like that. I've read a couple, a couple of good books. I've gotten into, uh, just more of, more of, uh, outdoors, outdoor stuff, just really enjoying, you know, um, just views and, and hiking and just, uh, that outdoor environment. Got into uh, meditation as well since I've been sober, and uh, that's kind of something I've never really thought that I'd ever really be a part of, but that's a pretty cool deal too. Yeah, you and me both, <laughs> Stephen. And, and I went to college in California. Yeah. I lived there for, for four years. I don't know Bakersfield, that area well. What's the closest outdoor place? Like how far are you from Yosemite? Um, where do you go when you want to get outside and go hiking? Um, honestly, man, there's, a, uh, there's some beautiful forestry. I mean – uh, two hours away from my house. I mean, away from my front door. I mean, I, I, I got to go two hours for to the beach. I get to the beach in a couple hours. I'll get to the mountains in a couple hours. Yosemite's like two and a half, three hours away. So, I mean, I'm pretty, pretty centralized to a lot of stuff. So it's a, it's, it's a pretty decent place to live, man. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. All right. Well, let's get into this. Give listeners a little background about your drinking. Describe your drinking habits, how much you used to drink, did you ever attempt to regulate? When did you first realize that alcohol needed to go? Yeah, I'm excited to hear more about your story, Stephen. Well, I started kind of dabbling with uh, drinking. I was about 13 or 14. That was when I had my my first few beers. Got into a little bit of uh, of smoking, you know, smoking weed, and uh, I didn't really uh, get too heavily into my drinking until about my, my senior year of high school, about 17, 18. And it was, it started out more, more along the lines of, uh, a lot of just weekend binge drinking, just partying all weekend and, uh, just kind of doing the school thing during the week. And I don't really remember getting too crazy during the week back then, but it started out just weekend binging. And I got kicked out when I was 18, kind of floated around for a while and slept on friends' couches and in my truck or in my car, you know. Wherever I could just find a place to, to crash out and basically just pass out. And Stephen, hey, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. Let's, let's back this up. And sure. listeners, Stephen sent me an email. There's a line that I want to cover because this is the enhanced dopamine receptors. And I know a lot of people can relate to this. You said, I started drinking when I was 13. After that first drink, I was hooked with that mind-altering feeling. The void was instantly filled. So just describe that, that first drink, first, first time when you were 13. Yeah, for as long as I can remember, I just I never really felt like I belonged in this world. I mean, it kind of sounds dark and, and deep, but I never really felt like I, I belonged in this world. And I, I never really felt like I belonged in, in, in my family. And there just wasn't a lot of love. And I, I would always go over to friends' houses or, or be around other people. And, and just really, I, I remember just wishing that I, I could have what they have, you know. And I just always felt this huge void inside of me, this huge hole that I had inside of me. And yeah, when I, when I took that first drink... And I experienced that that mind altering, you know, thing that happened at that at that moment in time. 
and being around the people that I was with and, and being able to share that with them, I feel like that all that stuff kind of disappeared and, and that void did get filled. And I really just got hooked on that. That really made me want to keep searching for, for more of that. So. And Steven, sorry to interrupt. I know exactly what you're talking about. I recall very clearly my first drink and I was saying, I said, Oh my God, this is it. This is what I've been missing. And I was hooked just like you. So sorry to interrupt. Uh, pick us, pick us up where you left off. Thank you. Early twenties. Um, I got kicked out when I was 18. I kind of was on my own for a while. Um, when I was 19, I ran into my first DUI. I was on my way home, I think at the time. And I, came to from from a blackout inside my truck and I had wrapped my Chevy S10 around a power pole and took out a power pole, took out a tree, a no parking sign pole and went through a brick wall. And that was uh that was kind of my first first big incident from uh from drinking that kind of uh really shook me to the core. And I think I was just so so deep in in my drinking and and so deep in how I was feeling towards the world and how I just didn't feel apart, how I still have that, that huge void inside of me. It didn't really rock me enough to take me out to a point where I thought I had a problem or anything like that. So I spent the night in the, in the drunk tank and, and I came out the next day and I continued on with, with where I left off. You know, I, I, I kept drinking after that and it just continuously got worse. Sure. And you mentioned you started a killer career about four years later, or maybe eight years later, you received your second DUI with the BAC of 0.29. Yeah. And you mentioned it did not go well with the police officers. Yeah, no, no, it didn't. I was on my way home again, and, you know, I I saw those lights light up in in my rearview mirror, and I instantly got angry. You know, I I instantly just got pissed off uh, because I knew I was in trouble. I knew I was screwed. My, my whole life kind of basically flashed before my eyes. You know, I, I, I had this killer job. I, I felt like that was out the window. I, I had bought my own house. Um, I have my own, my own truck. You know, I, I have all these nice things that I've, that I've worked for, and I've gotten on good terms with my family. You know, I, I felt like I was just going to lose everything. So I, I instantly just got very angry with myself, and uh, I made things a lot worse than they had to be. I got pulled over. They pulled me out of the truck. They found some beers in the truck. I ended up getting in a fight with the cops. You know, I, I got charged with resisting arrest, so I was looking at some jail time. I was looking at really losing my job. And after that, the only people who who ever knew about that DUI for a really long time, basically for the first year, was my roommate, which is my best friend who lives with me, and my boss, because I had to tell him, because I drive a company work truck. So those are the only people who knew. But after that, after, after that second DUI, after I got out of jail, um, that was when I opened my eyes to that, that, that eye opener, that oh shit moment where, you know, it's like, okay, uh, you might, you might have, there, there, there might be an issue here, you know, like if you keep going, I, I feel like I'm going to, I'm going to die or I'm going to hurt somebody or I'm going to spend the rest of my life in jail. And I don't want that stuff. So, um, I thought I would take a little break and that's what I did for a little while, you know? And when you walked out of jail, was that August 7th, 2016, or did you continue to drink a little bit more before your, your last sobriety date? No, that was that was August seventh, two thousand sixteen. Oh, wow. I, I okay, okay. Yeah. Well, congratulations! Yeah. You had a, a huge wake up moment. Um, I had a DUI driving to work, kind of a similar moment, except I didn't have the altercation, altercation with the police officer. But I walked out saying the same thing. But my my resolution lasted about sixteen days, and I was not only 
uh, drinking, but I was driving drunk. So nice job, Stephen, for recognizing the signs. And, and let's back it up a little bit be, before your sobriety date here. And it is not my purpose in this podcast to tell anybody that they've got a drinking problem. It's, it's That's for people to, to arrive at that conclusion themselves. But give listeners a little, something about you know, a little bit about your drinking. Did you ever... Did you ever attempt to moderate before this DUI or, or you know, maybe put some rules into place? But even before that question, how much were you drinking? Yeah, there was there was a lot of times where I would try to regulate my drinking. I'm actually in I'm actually a part of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, so I'm 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 in a twelve step program now. And you know, there's the the whole relapse thing. I felt like when I as I've been a part of AA, I haven't relapsed yet. I say yet because there's always there's always a chance. I, I feel like you know what I mean. But just as long as I'm doing the right things, I feel like I can hopefully hopefully get hopefully stay away from that. But I feel like I did all my relapsing beforehand, you know, um, because I always I always had those those moments of okay, I'm not going to drink this week. Or I remember talking to my buddies about hey let's let's take a break for, from drinking for 30 days, or you know let's do. Uh, let's do a month challenge or let's do a couple month challenge, you know, not that we would always last, last them out or anything, but I would always remember wanting to do that because I knew deep down inside my, that my drinking was out of control, but I just couldn't do anything about it. There's numerous times where I would go out and have to work the next day and be like, okay, well, I, I got to be home by nine. So I'm going to go out till eight thirty, be home by nine, be in bed by nine thirty. You know, I get like eight hours sleep and be good to go tomorrow. So I'm not all hung over. There were times where I'd be like, I'm not going to take any shots tonight because I'd get way too fucked up when I take shots. You know, I'm not going to drive tonight because I don't want to possibly get a DUI and, you know, things like that. I mean, there was just numerous, numerous things where I always tried to regulate my drinking, but it just never happened. I would always end up, you know, waking up, feeling like shit the next day, hungover, or, you know, out at closing the bar at 2 o'clock in the morning, just being like, man, how did I get here? You know what I mean? Stephen, you did a great job of listing several ways that we try to think ourselves out of this problem. And that's my next question to you is, I know you try to think yourself out of this problem. You just mentioned all the ways that you tried to successfully do that. I've got a long list of my, myself that didn't work. And you know what, what, what do you say to listeners who say, you know what, I'm just going to read a couple books and acquire some knowledge and I'm going to think myself through this. I'm going to say as far as from a personal standpoint on that, thinking yourself through it, it's just not going to happen. I mean, I don't know. I just feel like if anyone is, was, is in a position like I was in, I drank four to seven days a week, um, just depending on what was going on. I drank every weekend, no matter what. And on the weekends, I didn't have to work the next day. So I'd wake up in the morning and I'd start drinking on Saturday and I'd drink all day Saturday and I'd do the same thing on Sunday. And then once again, I'd try to regulate on Sunday because I knew I had to go to work on Monday. So I would always try to like stop drinking at a certain time on Sunday, but it was, it was an all the time thing for me. So if anyone's in that sort of position and I mean, you don't have to drink all day, every day to necessarily have a problem. I feel like, I mean, if it's affecting your life in any sort of way, shape or form, I mean, you might, there might be a, there might be a little issue there. And if there is, and if you find yourself in that point, I don't think thinking yourself through it is enough to get to the other side of that because with society, with friends, drinking companions, you know, the list goes on with all of those things. It's really, really hard to get away from drinking. And that, I, I feel like that was my problem. 
is I really thought like there was nothing else to do in life besides party and drink. And when I stopped drinking, there was a lot of people who I ran into that knew me from before and was like, well, what do you do with your life now? You know, like, is it, is it even like, do you even have fun? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just weird, just random questions like that. It's like, yeah, man, life, life's good. You know what I mean? There's a lot of stuff to do being sober. And it's just, it's just so crazy to me that society just, you know, matched this, this image of everybody has to drink in order to have fun or, you know, but in reality, like a lot of people are drinking because they got a lot of stuff going on inside of them that they got to deal with. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I agree with a lot what you just said. Society does a very good job of painting a picture that we need alcohol to be content, to be whole inside. And and I, I bought that hook, line, and sinker for a long time. In fact, I got a I got a TEDx talk titled "I Was Duped by Alcohol." Because yeah, I saw that. Yeah, it's exactly how I felt. It's like, come on, man, I'm 21. Just like you said, I can legally drink. Uh, yeah, and this nearly ruined my life. Now I'm taking full responsibility for it. I'm not blaming anybody but myself. And as far as the thinking thing, I, I love what you said, is I have realized that my sobriety is a result of action and not thinking. And it's just, it's just how recovery is confusing in that regard. And, and talk to us about what it was like when you walked out on August 7th, 2016. You've been drinking for a good chunk of your life before that. How did you do it? What was the first couple of days like? Oh, man, that was tough when I first quit drinking. Like I said before, no one... Nobody knew about my second DUI, so that was that was the main reason of me. I had been wanting to stop drinking before that, and I felt like that was just kind of the cherry on top. Like, okay, this is it. You know, either you make a decision now to stop drinking and you stick with it, or you keep going going down the path you're going, and it's going to be worse next time. That not just it's, it's not just going to be a DUI. I I really truly feel like if I kept drinking, it was it was going to be ten times worse. So with my having run into my second DUI, um, at this, you know, at this really good job that I have, I felt very embarrassed. I didn't tell my parents cause I felt embarrassed. I didn't tell a lot of my friends because I was embarrassed. It was a, it was a really shameful thing that I, I didn't tell any of my coworkers, only my boss. So he had, he had to take that information and, and run it by his boss and, and do what they were, you know, do what they were supposed to do their, their protocol. And, so I was kind of in limbo for about three months on whether or not I was going to still have a job or not. And it was it was tough, man. The whole not drinking thing was hard. I kind of just went into hibernation mode. All I really did was uh, work and come home, and, and that, that was basically it, man, for, for a few months just because I was just really embarrassed. I was in a really deep, dark spot. I felt really depressed, really angry with myself. I just didn't really know what to do, you know, and I, I just knew at that time I knew I had to take a break from drinking. I, I didn't. Even at that time, I knew one day I was going to drink again, and that's what I told myself. I ended up meeting, I ended up meeting a girl around uh, four or five months after my second UI, and uh, we dated for a little while. And about a year mark of me being sober, uh, we ended up breaking up, and that kind of went pretty badly. And that was mm-hmm. the one point. That was the one point I got to after I had stopped drinking that. I really obsessed over drinking. Like, that's all I wanted to do. And I almost did. I poured myself a, a glass of Jack Daniels, and, and I had it right here in, in the kitchen of my house, and I was getting ready to drink it. And I, I like to call it healthy fear. I had a lot of healthy fear inside of me for uh, towards drinking because I didn't, you know, you kind of play that tape through, you know, uh, what happens if I take this first drink? Well, 
you know, this, this, and this, I'm going to end up driving, I'm going to end up having another DUI, I'm going to end up hurting myself or somebody else, you know, like you just got to play that tape through. And I got scared, you know, I, I, I had that healthy fear. So I, I picked up my phone and I called one of my best friends. He's been sober for his whole life and he came over to my house and he ended up talking me out of it. And I ended up walking into an AA meeting that the, the next night and I've been in AA ever since. And there's been a lot of, a lot of great things that have happened through, through that too. Steven, I love how you said healthy fear. Now, fear can get us sober, but it's not going to keep us sober. This is fear, um, just fear in general, but there is such thing as a healthy fear of alcohol, just respect for the alcohol. And that's, I think, what I have. My healthy fear for alcohol is respect. I'm terrified to drink even that first drink because it's it's not the 10th drink or the 20th drink that gets me in trouble. It's the very first one. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for this drink, which has a spirit <laughs> of, of its own. In, in fact, in Arabic, the word alcohol means mind and body eating spirit. I think that culture <laughs> got the, the nomenclature right for it. But I love how you said it's a healthy fear. You poured it. Gosh, you poured a, a, a glass of Jack Daniels. I mean, you're, you're, you're so close to drinking it. And oh, man. yeah, like that's, that's incredible. And you, you phoned a friend, man. Nice job. That's hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, Sitting here now and talking about it after the fact, I mean, I, I don't even, I don't even know how how it happened or how I did it. It's just, I don't know, something inside of me just really just didn't want me to drink. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that, that that's the willpower does not get you a year of sobriety, and then willpower does not get you through a glass of Jack Daniels in your in your kitchen by yourself after a difficult breakthrough. So you had done something right before that. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's fantastic. It's incredible. That's definitely a huge speed bump overcome in sobriety. And after that, you mentioned you walked in to the, you walked into the rooms of AA and the rest is history. So what was that first meeting like? And I know a lot of listeners, the majority of my listeners have not gone to AA and this is two interviews in a row where the interviewee, uh, the 12 step program, AA has been a big part of their recovery. Again, this podcast is not affiliated in any manner. We're just about sharing resources that work with people. So talk to us a little bit, a little bit about AA and your experience with it. Okay, so my mom, she's a uh, uh, drug and she's a drug addict al- uh, and alcoholic. Um, when when I was a kid, she was she was in NA, so I kind of knew a little bit. At least at least I knew that there was something out there. I didn't really know a whole lot about the program, uh, what it was about, but I knew there was something out there like for help. Right, so I knew that uh, that there was this and and. At this point in time, I kind of I kind of got to a point where I figured that there might be some sort of problem here if I'm, you know, if I'm being sober a whole entire year on my own, and that was a pretty miserable year if, in in retrospect. But um, being able to be sober for a whole year and then getting to a point where something, you know, in in my eyes phenomenal happened, you know, and a, a part of life. And it got me to a point where I obsessed over drinking because I and and I didn't have any tools. I didn't have anything to do. I I didn't know what to do when something bad happened in my life and and I didn't have alcohol to fall back on. So the first thing I'm going to do is what I usually always do is just you know I, you have a bad day or something bad happens in your life. Well, I'm going to go drink over it. You know, even even when good things happen in life, people drink over that stuff too. I mean, I used to do that too. Any any reason to drink mm-hmm. is just a good reason to drink. You know. So when I when I walked into AA, man, I mean, I, I really didn't know what to expect. 
uh, I just knew that I needed to, to seek out some sort of some sort of help. I, I wasn't sure if it was going to help me or I was going to figure anything out at that meeting. But, you know, I, I walked in and, and I gave it a shot. It was a really small meeting. When I first walked in, man, these people were just super pumped to see me, just so happy that I was there. And they they know me from, you know, a hole in the wall. I mean, they, you know, they, they've never seen me before. We've never talked before, nothing. But they're so happy to see me. They they welcome you with open arms. You know, they, they're giving you hugs, telling you, you know, welcome, glad you're here and all that stuff. And it's, I mean, in reality, it's pretty uncomfortable the, the first time around. You know what I mean? Because... I mean, I'm kind of just wanting to go in and just kind of check this thing out. So I walked in that meeting, I sat down and, you know, they, they went around the room and I remember it coming, coming around to me and then I, I don't even remember what I said really to, to be honest with you, but I probably just, you know, told them where I was at and what, what was going on inside of me and uh, what's been going on this last year. Anyways, <clears throat> that meeting ended and I jammed out the door and I really wasn't sure if I was going to go back or not. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I just, I didn't really know how I felt about it, but I left and I walked out that door and there was this guy that followed me outside and he goes, Hey man, he stopped me and he talked to me a little bit and uh, asked me a couple questions, you know, how I was feeling and what, what brought me to this meeting tonight. And uh, he asked me if I had any plans the next night. And I said, no. And he goes, well, why don't you come to this meeting? Why don't you come to this meeting with me? So, I went to a meeting with him the next night, and uh, he handed me a he handed me a big book with uh, with a little quote inside of it that said, uh, um, "Just for the joy of living, one day at a time." And uh, he in- introduced me to a lot of his friends at the meeting, and that guy ended up taking me under his wing, and he became my sponsor and walked me through the twelve steps. And he's been a huge, huge part of my recovery, and it was kind of cool because about three or four months later, he was coming over to my house and to do some to do some work and he came over to my house that night and he's like hey i've been wanting to talk to you about something he said remember when we met at that meeting that night and i said yeah and he goes well something was telling me to go try out a different meeting that night and so i went to that meeting and that's that's when we met and it just kind of kind of all hit me like a ton of bricks you know like me not drinking that night at my house when i wanted to and calling my friends have him come over um him advising me to to go check out a meeting uh, me going to that specific meeting, you know, I don't know, they, things, the, the stars just kind of aligned and, um, you know, you, you hear things in these rooms and uh, people suggest things to you and I don't know, I felt like there was some sort of hope in there and, and I just had a little bit of willingness um, to stick around and, and give it a shot because I really didn't have anywhere else to go or anything else to give. Wow. That's a powerful story. And there's some huge hearts in AA in the rooms of 12-step programs. And the best thing about it, not the best thing about it, just how it is, is this gentleman, um, and the same thing with my sponsor, they'll, they'll do a ton of, they'll dedicate a ton of time for you. And they're not going right. to bill you or invoice you. It's just part of it. You can walk away at any time. They'll say, okay, maybe I'll talk to you later. Maybe I won't. It's like no strings right. attached help, which is, which is incredible. And you, you did a great job of explaining just how that first meeting is. You're like, yeah, it's uncomfortable. It is, you know, and, and you, after the meeting, you said, yeah, I, I bolted out the door, you and everybody else who went to their first day. Right. I'm getting the hell out of here. Um, but somebody was quicker. Somebody's like, hey, I think I need to be at this meeting instead of the other one. And, hey, I think I need to talk to this guy after the meeting. That's pretty cool that uh, just that series of events happened. And, and, and listeners, like I mentioned, this is the second interview in the row where, where the interviewee 
got sober through 12 step programs or, or it's been a big part of their recovery. Now, I know a lot of, I've, I've had emails saying like, Hey, I'm, I don't want to listen to people who get sober from AA programs. And to that, I, I don't care. Um, I, that, that's fine. People can email me and say that, but this is a huge, huge program. And I, I know people want to hear the interview and say, Hey, I got sober through juggling or I got sober through Frisbee or hacky sack. Like that could be a part of it, but that I haven't really heard of anybody where that's their, been their program yet. It's a lot of work. It is. And it can be fun right. at the same time. And have you encountered that recovery is fun and, or is it all just challenging and, and no fun? At first, uh, I, I really didn't know what to expect. It's, it's a huge lifestyle change being sober. Uh, if you've been drinking for a long time and, and your life was basically kind of revolving around alcohol and drinking and partying and things like that, going from that to, to not drinking and trying to live a sober life, it's really, really difficult. And it's really, really just different. Like you just really have to be open-minded to change because if not, then you're not really going to go anywhere. And the whole thing about, uh, AA and, and all the, the, you're right about what you said about it is an action program and there is a lot of action that needs to be taken in, in, in that 12 step program. Um, but there's also a lot of fun to be had in, in AA and outside of AA. I mean, when I first came in, I was in a really weird spot. I mean, I just was, you know, I felt like I still had a lot of that void in me and, and I just didn't know, I never knew what was wrong. And, you know, I, I always just, I don't know, you just, just in a just a really weird dark dark spot for a long time and when uh when a when my sponsor walked me through the, the 12 steps i mean it was cool but i it, it's more for me it's more of a uh i learned i i basically just learned how to be a good human being because i didn't really know how to do that before i was just so unhappy with myself inside and outside to where i wanted other people to feel my pain and and i wanted other people to to feel the way that i felt inside so I would treat people like crap, and, and I lied, I cheated, I, I stole. Um, I became a fantastic uh, manipulator. It just became like second nature to me, and there were times where I, w- I didn't even realize that I was doing it. I mean, uh, just just being an overall, you know, bad person, it's not like I was out there, um, you know, physically hurting people, but, I mean, you know, mentally, is pro- I feel like is just as worse. And so for me what AA has, has given me back is like, it's just life. I feel like I've, I, I have this new life to live and, and I can, you know, it's, it's not all about AA either. You don't have to, you know, live and breathe AA. I mean, it's, it's gotta be a good portion of your life, but I mean, there's, there's also other things out there, you know, like for getting out and exercising or hiking. I mean, that can be some people's, you know, spirituality part of their life, you know, like they can get, um, spiritual guidance out of things like that and just in different hobbies that you like to do uh, meditation there's just there, there's a lot of different things out there that, that that you can do and that people can do in order to live a good healthy sober life and for me something that I really enjoy now is just being that person that I have always felt like I've wanted to be that was always inside of me but it just, I just felt like I was locked up in in, in my own jail or something like that you know yeah, you're you're nailing this thing, man. You are dropping value bombs left and right, Stephen. And early in the interview, you mentioned you know, after that after the DUI that you were so ashamed you didn't want to tell anybody, and you know, the anger, the self loathing. 
But where you are, where are you at now with the anonymity component? Obviously, you don't go to an AA meeting and and share what's been said in the meeting with other people. That I don't do that either. But I'm not anonymous about my recovery, hence a podcast. And I can already know the answer to you because you're you're on a podcast episode sharing your story, which is awesome. But are you open about the fact that you're in recovery in your community with your friends, with your family, other coworkers, things like that? Yeah. So at first, uh, I, I wasn't until about I don't know, maybe maybe about halfway. I, I've been I've been in AA for about a year and a half now, and maybe like the first six months, I didn't I kind of kept it under under wraps just because I wasn't really sure how I felt about it. I wasn't really sure how to to, to tell people or to talk to people about it. Honestly, I felt like I kind of still, you know, cared about being judged and what people would think or, or anything like that about me. But I don't know. I kind of just came to a spot where I realized that um, this part of my life, which is AA, has really helped me out a lot and uh, I shouldn't be ashamed of it. So, yes, now I am very open about it. I, I believe that being open about it is not only good for me, but it's good for other people in case I do come across somebody and I am open about it, maybe it would make them feel more comfortable on asking me questions if they feel like, you know, they have a problem or they have any sort of, you know, ideas about themselves and and drinking or alcohol or anything like that. Maybe I could possibly help them out with that. As far as, you know, the contrary of that, if I wasn't open with that, I, you know, I possibly might not be able to help people out, you know, and I feel like a big part of my life now is being of service to people not only in AA, but outside of AA. Outside of AA is really important because I never really cared too much about anybody but myself for a really long time. And um, now I feel like I've just given a, been given a second chance to, to live this new sort of life, you know what I mean? And, and to do that, I feel like I, I can help out other people in recovery and outside of recovery. I mean, either way, if, I, if there's anything that I can do that, that, that's in my path for today, then I'm going to do it. Steven, I have nothing to comment on what you just said because I don't think I could add anything more value. You just nailed it. I mean, I totally agree with what you said. I love it, all of it. Nice job. And I got one more question before we hit the rapid fire round. What's on your bucket list in sobriety? You got 900 days, man. I hope, I hope when you woke up this morning, you put your feet on the ground and said, 900 days, bitches. Nice job, man. I'm freaking stoked for it. Nice job. Yeah, what's on yeah. the bucket list, man? Steven 2.0, what can we see? What's what's on the horizon? And honestly, I just want to I just want to live the best life that I can live. I know it kind of, you know, I mean if if it, if this was me 4 years ago and I was listening to me now, you know, I'd be like, man, this guy's full of shit. You know what I mean? But <laughs> Me too, and, man. 5 years yeah, ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, dude, it's 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 like, man, this guy's just so full of it, you know what I mean? But Honestly, honestly, man, I mean, I'm, I'm pumped up. I'm pumped up for life, and, and uh, there's a lot of life to live out there, and life's too short to, to be drunk and, and just wasting, wasting your days away, you know? And there's, there's a lot of stuff to do, and there's a lot of things that I've missed out on, I feel like, as far as with friends, with family, enjoying certain things in life. So my bucket list is just to, to be in tune with life, man, and just, just really embrace, like, what goes on in my life on a daily basis, whether it's, you know, enjoying time with, with my family or my girlfriend or my, my friends or people I work with, if I can help people out. But one of, one of, one of my big bucket list things is, uh, is 
getting out there and, and traveling the world and being able to remember it and being able to, to have those memories and, and not be out there doing stupid things, you know, and uh, I'm really excited to uh, hopefully move forward in, in my relationship with, with my girlfriend and uh, be able to be in a real a real relationship and real long lasting relationship and hopefully get to that, that marriage portion and, and build a, uh, when we're building solid foundation and I, I, I for sure want a family. And I feel like now with where I've been and, and where, and, and what I've done, I feel like I can have that now, you know, and that's, and that's a really cool thing for me to, to be able to, to see. So it is so cool to see the pieces almost effortly fall into place. When we get so, it's just incredible to watch it. And I see it in the cafe area groups every single day. And as far as traveling the world, I'm right there with you. I don't know if you knew, we're going to Thailand and Cambodia, January 2020. Hope you can join us. And, and Stephen, right we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yes, sir. All right. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? Man, I feel like there's a lot, but probably waking up, coming to whatever you want to call it, out of a blackout after I wrapped my truck around a power pole, um, took out a tree and no parking sign pole and went through a brick wall. That was probably my one of my worst memories. Yeah, yeah. And apart from AA, what are some other resources that you recommend? Earlier in the interview, you mentioned you read some books. Uh, yeah, what are some other resources? Okay. Some of my favorite resources besides AA, I, I'm reading this book right now, actually. It's called This Naked Mind. Andy um, Grace, great book. No, yeah, yeah, it is. It's a, it's a really good book, man. It, there's a lot of uh, statistics in there and a lot of, a lot of good facts. Um, I'm definitely learning a lot, but I like to keep it, keep my options like broad, you know, not just strictly AA, but I like to listen to your podcast. I like to listen to other podcasts. Um, I just really like to stay connected to my recovery. I love it. In regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Best advice? There was a, uh, a big moment in my program that had happened to me. Uh, it was actually when I was making making my amends <clears throat> with with some of my family, and uh, there was a huge huge uh, thing that happened, and it, it really kind of rocked my world. And it was uh, I think that was the second time I really really obsessed over drinking, and I I took myself to a meeting that night after that had happened, and I had to walk out of the meeting, and a lady came out in the hallway and sat next to me and put her hand on my shoulder. And she said, everything's going to be okay. You never have to drink again if you don't want to. And for some reason that just burned in my brain. And I feel like that's the best advice anyone's ever given me. And what parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners? If anyone who has listened to this interview can relate to anything I said, um, I feel like the only piece of advice I could give you is just get honest with yourself and just really give yourself a chance to be that person that has been locked up inside you all this time. I get to live a new life today because I'm not surrendered to the bottle or booze or partying anymore. Whether I'm having a bad day or it's a Friday and society says it's okay for me to get fucked up because I can, I don't have to justify that drink anymore. I don't have to justify that life anymore. So there's a life out there worth living without the booze and it's a wonderful one. So just, you know, get in tune, stay in touch with that and uh, just find that peace, you know? And Stephen, before we depart, give listeners your own customized You Might Be an Alcoholic gift line. You might be an alcoholic if you wake up two hours away from your hometown at a train station, not having the slightest clue on how you got there, with a massive headache, a massive hangover, 
without a shirt, and um, at least there was a nice lady there who uh, let me borrow her jacket to keep me warm, bless her heart. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. Nice one. <laughs> Steven, it has been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. I really appreciate you letting me do this. Yeah, nice job. Thank you. President Donald Trump has donated his salary from the third quarter of 2018 to the federal agency that researches alcoholism and alcohol-related problems. The White House says Trump donated $100,000 to the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Well, we've heard that institution before because about, about five months ago, I mentioned the NIAAA created a study in hopes to prove that moderate levels of alcohol consumption was safe and even healthy. Once it was leaked, this study was being funded by big alcohol, all hell broke loose. And we don't need to cover that anymore. That's actually not the point of me mentioning this. But alcoholism is a personal issue for the president. His older brother, Fred Jr., died in 1981 after struggling with alcoholism. And the president has said he learned from his brother's experiences. Despite what you think of the guy, that's pretty cool. I also want to say, Trump is the gift that keeps on giving. And look, I don't want to make this a political podcast or a political statement, nor do I have a horse in this race, but he's doing a good job for a few things. Number one, the guy is hilarious. I don't think he's fully aware, but his tweets, his in-person interviews are incredible. You cannot watch them and keep a straight face. He's been the greatest gift to late night comedy since, well, probably ever. In addition, in addition... Positive change is rarely made unless we know where to shine the light on darkness that exists in our country. Trump has done a phenomenal job of highlighting the injustices and differences in our country. I don't think this is his intention at all, but he's doing a good job of it. And just like recovering from addiction, we first need to look within and see what's not working. Recovery Elevator, it all starts from the inside out. This is an inside job. I love you guys. Thank you.